our mission was really to kill or capture Muhammad Farah ID, um, yeah, that, or basically yeah, remove his infrastructure. And, and well, we, we were independent from the UN effort yes. too. We had one simple mission, kill or capture one individual. And so what you have is, is this dynamic where you can drive in or, or take a helicopter in to a neighborhood to do a job and it's no big deal. But if you go one block over, then you, you put a stick in the hornet's nest. Yep. And the, uh, the uh, Hover Gator Militia was about 3,000 strong. They, they couldn't muster 3,000 you know, at that particular point in Mogadishu because they were in the outskirts. And, uh, but but uh, varying estimates have them up to 2,000 and, and losing 1,000 during that battle. Hi and welcome to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission, it's a first-person account of combat. In this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi talks to three guests, Larry Perino, Lee Van Arsdale, and Kyle Lamb. Each of them was a part of a mission in Mogadishu, Somalia, 25 years ago. And while that single mission would become famous from Mark Bowden's book, Black Hawk Down, and the movie of the same name, this episode is an opportunity to hear directly from our guests what happened that day. And truly, even if you've read the book and seen the movie, Hearing these three practitioners from elite units describe not only what happened, but also what was going through their minds at key moments of the Battle of Mogadishu, I guarantee you'll learn some things you have never heard. Now, there was so much detail and so much to unpack from their stories that we split the conversation up into two episodes. This is part one, in which you'll hear them talk about the earlier part of their deployment, some previous missions, how this particular mission came about, and really how everything happened once they launched. This part, to put it bluntly, takes us right up until the point when things really start to go badly. A helicopter goes down, local militia fighters start to turn out in force, and the fight is on. In case you aren't yet subscribed to The Spear, be sure to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss the second part of this incredible conversation, which we'll release in two weeks. Before we get to this episode, one last thing. As always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's part one of the Battle of Mogadishu. Gentlemen, thank you for sitting down and taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I want to lead off for folks that maybe aren't familiar with uh, any of you guys and just kind of go around the room and, and talk about who you are now, who you were in 93, and just introduce yourself a little bit. We'll start right here, sir. I'm Lee Van Arsdale, retired colonel, special forces. I was a member of Task Force Ranger in Somalia in October 1993. And I'm his driver, <laughs> Kyle Lamb. Uh, I'm a retired SAR major. I spent uh, most of my career with a special mission unit. And uh, in Somalia in 1993, I was a staff sergeant, new to C Squadron. and. Uh, I guess that's pretty much it. Yeah. And uh, I'm uh, Larry Perino, I'm a retired colonel, 
infantry class of 1990 USMA. Uh, in 1993, I was a 24-year-old platoon leader in Bravo Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion, as part of Task Force Ranger. All right. So we're here today to talk. It is the 25th anniversary of the Battle of Mogadishu. Um, so we're here to talk that in, in you know, as much detail as we can in the time allotted. To start, again, especially because our cadet population is younger than the battle at this point. Um, yeah, say it ain't so. <laughs> uh, I want to get just a general picture of the situation in, in Somalia in 1993, sort of what we were doing there, what the, the mission set was, um, and then we can talk about the specifics of the battle itself. So anyone who wants to field that, feel free. Uh, well, starting with the famine, I think that's the biggest thing right. that got the trouble started in Mogadishu was a, a nationwide famine. Well, first it was civil war. In 1991, right. Siad Barre, who was, uh, he was the president, president. Was, was overthrown. Uh, civil war ensued, but one of the results was a, was, a, was a famine. But go ahead. So then, of course, you got a large populace moving into Mogadishu that wouldn't have been there. And then when that happens, you guys can probably get into it a little bit deeper about the whole political situation, but uh, my perspective as a young NCO on the battlefield was that we got more people than should be here, and then you've got tribal leaders that want to take that over and control that, whether it's buying and selling guns, running the drugs, running people, uh, you know, taking the supplies that we brought in, and, and then the failed, no, I shouldn't say failed, folks being pulled out too early, other military folks, and now all of a sudden they want us to come in. So that's my perspective as a E6 at that point. So you guys would understand probably better the larger situation. Well, so Kyle's right. The, the famine <clears throat> is at the heart of all of this, but what is significant is because of the Civil War that Larry mentioned has been going on for a couple of years, the result of the Soviet Union falling, Somalia was a Soviet client state, so no Soviet Union, no central government in Somalia. So now we revert to clan warfare. It's a clan-based society. And some of the clans were using starvation as a weapon. They were able to do this because of the famine. So the United Nations came in to referee all that and get food to the people that needed it. And in June of 93, 23 or 24 Pakistani peacekeepers were ambushed and killed by the Habergator militia run by General Muhammad Far Aidid. So that's where we got involved. The U.S. activated Task Force Ranger to go kill or capture Aidid. We were deployed in August of 93 for that. Yeah, late August, I think 23rd, I think. And I don't know when the first element was on the ground, but at least I know the main body got on the ground in uh, yeah, August 23rd. Mm -hmm. right. I think some of the difference, though, when, when we looked at, you know, coming off Desert Shield, Desert Storm, you're, you're not fighting. I, I didn't feel like there we were fighting an enemy that was going to desecrate our bodies if, if you were killed in the streets. Whereas with Mogadishu, it was those Pakistanis were drugged through the streets and a lot of things happened. So there, there was, it was definitely an escalated situation. All right, so we have the Civil War, which precipitates the famine. We have the Pakistanis get ambushed in Mogadishu. U.S. troops, I, I feel like there were U.S. troops on ground, but the main part of Task Force Ranger gets there late August, Right. Well, what happened, you know, first contingent was U.S. initially, you know, and I don't know if people saw, you know, it was on CNN where you could see all the, the press standing on the beach watching the Marines come ashore, yeah. and, and there was a heavy U.S. presence, but rapidly handed it over to the United Nations to be able to do this. Yeah, and that was because... George H.W. Bush, as a lame duck president, just sent U.S. troops. Right. Then when Bill Clinton took over, he wanted to make it a multinational effort. So then that's when the U.N. got involved. So 
but as Lee was talking about, you know, the, our mission was really to kill or capture Muhammad Farah Idid, um, yeah, or basically remove him from, yeah, remove his infrastructure. And, and well, we we were independent from the UN effort yes. too. We had one simple mission: kill or capture one individual. All right. So, Task Force Ranger gets on the ground late August. We have to kill or capture one warlord and all of Mogadishu. How do we? How do we go about doing that? What was sort of the process by which we gathered the intelligence that we needed and and developed the situation to get to a place where we're ready to? Yeah. I think we need to go back attack. a little ways before that, though, because before we were deployed over there, I was actually I think in Anok or something, and we see little birds flying in the sky. We're like, oh, I wonder what's going on. Well, it's actually our guys and C Squadron, and then the Rangers are out there and they're doing rehearsals for this. Well, we come back, we go, what's going on? Well, we're going somewhere to Somalia. Where where the heck is that at? And what was interesting to me was the numbers were dictated, like you can't take any more than this amount of people. And as a young soldier, that's pretty disturbing because you want to deploy with your mates to go downrange. But we had a, I think when we left Fort Bragg, we had a really good plan of kind of what we envisioned, at least at my level, what we envisioned the missions were going to be like, you know, go into a city, uh, do this mission, then get exfilled by helicopters and everything's high-fiving at the end of the day and good to go. Um, I don't know when the numbers thing changed, but then all of a sudden they allowed more numbers to be well, allowed to go on that deployment. That, that was a continuing uh, dialogue with CENTCOM in charge of that AOR, not wanting many U.S. troops there. And then uh, the White House was deeply involved in the summer of 93. And we ultimately got capped at 450 personnel for Task Force Ranger. Could not have 451. And it, it's impossible to say going into an environment like that to conduct a mission, how many people will it take? Because the answer is it all depends. It could be two to 2,000. And so somebody arbitrarily set a number of 450. And, and as everyone knows, if you got helicopters involved or anything that flies, you have a significant ground presence for that. So we had a remarkably small amount of actual trigger pullers out of that 450, uh, which, which when you think about it, going into a bad environment like that is not the way you want to proceed. So like Kyle says, the, the numbers kind of went back and forth. It was us saying, hey, um, we will determine what we need to do. And um, as I've told a lot of people, politics always trump operational imperatives. At the end of the day, then that's what happened. You get you you get told, okay, you have this number of people, and it was 450. And it wasn't until after the Battle of Three and Four October that someone said, oh, gee, maybe we need more U.S. forces there. Yeah. And that's when A Squadron came in, and, and the rest of the Rangers. Um, yeah, it's just one of the things when you reduce numbers like that, and and what that does is a reduction in capability and increase in risk. You know, at a higher level, that's what you have to measure. Yeah, there are compromises you have to make because Task Force Ranger was a completely independent unit, unit, so we had to feed ourselves, we had to supply ourselves, we, we had to make our own repairs. So all that takes people, which count against the headcount number. So we had Ranger privates pulling KP and unit Sergeant First Classes pulling KP because we don't have privates. And, and you did a hell of a job. I did a good job as an E6 supervising <laughs> those E7s, right? But No, I mean, and that's really, I think that the, the moral of that is we're gonna get the job done. You give us, you tell us when the commander, who was General Garrison at the time said, we're gonna do this, we're all in. 
because he was, I mean, he, to, to me, he's one of the greatest commanders I ever worked for. So when he says, all right, boys, here's what we got, we were all in. We're going to, we'll pull KP, we'll take the Rangers out and train them, we'll make sure that they're squared away, we'll make sure that we try to get the training we need while we're on the ground, and then put together hopefully a solid plan. And I mean, we felt very confident, and I think that's, that's probably good and bad, and we'll get to that later, but I think that having that confidence on the battlefield, no matter what the number is, we felt like we could do the job. And we did. Yeah, we did it. I thought we were definitely cohesive. Yeah, yep. As an organization. Yeah, I agree with Kyle. General Bill Garrison is just a brilliant commander. There's not one member of that task force would say anything different. So he had been the unit commander, and, and uh, many of us had known him for years prior to that. And uh, I'll talk more about that a little bit later. But, uh, yeah, he stands up <coughs> and says, let's go, boys. We're all in. We're going. With his cigar in his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So we get on we get on ground. Everybody's doing what they need to do to prep for for the mission. Um, the mission that becomes, um, you know, the October third mission. Kind of what's the genesis of that? Is that where we've well, done enough up to that point where we've decided that well, we this is the six, best possible chance? We, we had this was our sixth mission. Yep. Seventh. We Seventh. Yeah, that was number seven. Six prior to. Yep. So. I mean, we stood up the task force after we laid, you know, late August, and what, two days later, I mean, we went, yeah, we sucked up a few mortar rounds in the compound, and that night we went and actually, you know, went after several targets, actually one target. Yeah, that was, that was kind of a pop-up operation. Uh, the, the plan was go in and get ID'd, and no one knew where he was. We, when we got there, the chief of station met us on the tarmac, said he had one source could tell us where he was, and that guy uh, was playing Russian roulette the previous evening and was no longer with us. So that, really? you know, that's the kind of yeah. environment you walk into. Yeah, you suffer in, from high velocity lead poisoning. Oh, no kidding. I didn't know and that. So <laughs> now, you know, the way the system works is the agency gets the intel and hands it off to someone like Task Force Ranger sure. to go execute. And uh, he, the agency had no assets there. So we said, okay, we'll take one week to do phase one. Let's go put the habeas grabus on ID if we can. And then if that doesn't work, we'll go to phase two, which is take out his infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So like Larry said, we did six infrastructure missions. The first one was kind of a pop-up, because as soon as we got there, they mortared us. And General Garrison basically said, we're going to show them we're not going to be sitting ducks. So we, we went out and policed up several of the Hopper Gator clowns. And uh, they got the message real quick. Uh, these, these guys are playing by different rules than the UN guys. So we did six successful missions prior to the 3 October raid. And those Which, were all, all infrastructure focused, yeah, and we, just we intel captured, gathering, uh, breaking down. Well, we captured Osman Otto, the chief financier mm -hmm. for the Hubbard Gator militia. So now there's nobody paying for weapons and ammo and paying the militia members. We took out the radio station where ID was broadcasting. He's, he's still executing a civil war while he's trying to stay underground hiding from us. So not an easy task. So we, we had six of those missions, and, and what's lost to a lot of people, particularly the journalists who reported on it immediately afterwards, is 3 October was not to get ID'd. It was part of this infrastructure plan. So we had two of his key lieutenants meeting, and we got uh, what we determined to be good enough intelligence to go police them up. So that was the mission that day, not to get ID'd. And, and what was interesting, and I was sharing this with Kyle, you know, right after we got on the ground, General Garrison pulled all the Ranger lieutenants, the young lieutenants, and it was the first time we had her out and exposed to General Garrison. He goes, "All right," and he's just sitting there with his shorts and his cigar, saying, "What questions do you have? You got, you know, all I have questions. What do you want?" And and it was just like a free and open talk with a 
Just, yeah. just to be clear, running shorts. Right, running shorts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, running shorts. And he just said, you know, asking questions. We started talking about, we looked at the map, and we're standing in front of a big, you know, overhead shot of the city, and we started talking about different areas. And he talked about the Bacara market. And, uh, and I just remember it was kind of eerily prophetic. I mean, this was in August, and he says, you know what? I won't ever send us, you know, you guys, we will not go in to, unless I, the target is actually worth it. But I will tell you, if we go in there, there's going to be a gunfight, no doubt. Yeah, the SNA kind of control that area. So if, I don't know if you can go in depth on SNA. That's yeah. the. Can you yeah. talk about that? I mean, can, can I or do you? No, I want you, you to. <laughs> I want because I I don't know that political situation as well as you do. Uh, and I don't know where you were going with that, but basically, you, you and tell me if this is what you're talking about. Mogadishu was divided into clan neighborhoods, and there you know there's no fences or signs. They just knew that if you're on this side of the block, you're okay. If you cross over here, you're probably get killed, and vice versa. Turf. So it, it was turf. It was like Beirut during their civil war. You know, there were no green lines, but uh, everyone who lived there knew what was their territory, and so we kind of knew that. We're, we're, you know, piecing it together, talking. Some, a lot of the Somalis were very friendly to us and happy to see us there. Mm -hmm. Not so with the Habergator militia. And the Habergator clan was one of the major ones vying for supremacy there. So you had the uh, the SNA, and I can't remember what that stands for. The Somali National Army, or uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, whatever it was, that was one of the main militias. And so what happened when the when Somalia's central government fell, the army just picked up all their weaponry and went back to their clan's militias. So no lack of firearms for these militias fighting each other, most of it Soviet bloc weaponry from the 80s and uh, early 90s. And so what you have is, is this dynamic where you can drive in or, or take a helicopter in to a neighborhood to do a job, and like I said, we had six of those, and it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. But if you go one block over, then you you put a stick in the hornet's nest, yep. and the uh, the uh, Habergator militia was about three thousand strong. They they told us after Fourth of October, prior to that, all the intel estimates were there about three hundred of them. So somebody misplaced a decimal there somewhere. Now <laughs> they they couldn't muster three thousand, you know, at that particular point in Mogadishu because they were in the outskirts, and uh, but but. Uh, Varying estimates have them up to 2,000 and, and losing 1,000 during that battle. So I don't know if that's where you're yeah, going. Yeah, yeah, and so, so basically they're controlling that area in the, in the Bacara market. And you could go in there and you could buy cot, the drug of choice. You could buy an RPG or you could buy a rifle. I mean, you could buy whatever you wanted there. And we'd fly over these, we did overflights to kind of familiarize ourselves with that, with the, with the whole layout of the, of the town. And we, we hoped that that also made the locals numb to our presence. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what we thought. If we start doing these overflights, exactly the same pattern that we're going to fly out of here, well, they're going to get, they're going to, they're just going to be like, yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. But whenever we flew over that Bacara market, you look down and you could see hundreds, maybe thousands of blue tarps that they had spread over their little areas where they're selling stuff and people were living there and, and doing all that. You so, also see the occasional muzzle flash directly yeah, at you. Yeah. So, <laughs> That kind of lays out what that area was like before we got to go in there. They're they're not numb to our presence. They're 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 ready to react at some point. There's and a little then, bit of a civil defense plan kind of established. Yeah, right. Uh, but but to back to the story, it was a Sunday afternoon, and a source had told us that 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 
this meeting was taking place at a com- in a compound, and uh, and anybody want to take it from there, just with, and how that that kind of developed to that to that decision. Yeah, it's interesting because, as I said, the CAA lost their one trusted source, so mm-hmm. now they're offering a lot of money to people to come forward sure. with information. It's not it's not analyzed. It's not intel yet. So we got a lot of Elvis sightings that you could immediately mm-hmm. discard. A couple of them that just smelled like an ambush waiting to happen, but this one seemed credible enough, and uh, the guy had proven himself on a previous occasion. So. Uh, as Larry said, the meeting place for these two key lieutenants is a compound, a walled compound, multiple buildings, multi-story buildings. So you put yourself uh, in the frame of mind of, of the assault force going in there. You don't know the floor plan. Mm-hmm. You just know they're meeting in there somewhere. And each one of these guys travels with about a dozen bodyguards whose only purpose in life is to eliminate any threat to their principal. So you're going to go in there and go through this compound, multiple buildings, multiple stories, find these two guys, apprehend them, and get out of there before the rest of the militia can react. And meanwhile, as soon as the, the unit guys go in, then the rangers come in to strong point, four points around that to provide outward-looking security. Yeah, so I think, I think that's an important thing to talk a little bit about. So we talked about Bacara Market, we talked about sort of strong pointing four points. What's uh, where, in terms of geographic space, is Bacar Market? Is it kind of the center of the city? I mean, how far how far were you going to have to ground Exfil to a, get out of a, the city? It was a couple blocks. It was a couple blocks. We, and we actually left from the airport. I mean, there was a plan. Uh, you know, once once the assault force goes in first, and, you know, it was the whole thing. What, do you secure it first or do you assault? You don't lose the element of surprise. So they drop the assault force off first. But we're right in behind it. There's also a convoy now coming in and I think yeah because we were all gonna because there was not a viable LZ nearby the plan was to exfil via ground so they have vehicles you know up armored Humvees and five tons sandbagged in you know we were gonna drive pick up whoever we could from from the target building and then take the whole task force out via ground and that that was the plan so you know we launch it goes in convoy leaves to link up with us and but, but back to your question, I can't recall, because all the overhead imagery I was looking at was focused strictly on the Bacara market area. If you take the whole city, it's sort of in the middle-ish of it. I mean, there's built-up area all around the Bacara market. It's a huge city. Right. I mean, it's a it's a yeah. huge, huge city. Yeah, and that, that's what I'm trying to Yeah, right, Mogadishu at this point is a gigantic city. It's not... A hamlet. Yeah. It's it's a sizable well, it's a, place. It's a city, right? and like Kyle said, it was uh, double or triple its normal population because of all the refugees there. So everywhere you go, there's shacks and and you know goats in the streets and open cooking fires and a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't be there. And then you'd fly over an Olympic swimming pool. Of course, it's no water in it, but from was it Pan American? What, what games? They had some Pan African or some. I don't know what it was called, but they had had. I mean, this. I'm not saying Mogadishu is ever this awesome place that you want to take your family, but there had been some infrastructure there that had been destroyed by, by the locals. You know, at that point, big, huge swimming pools and things like that that we flew over. Um, yeah. So there, you know, so the, there's there's different plans. I think there's the plan that's going on in the headshed mm-hmm. in the talk, and one of the things that that I saw as just a ground guy, as not the lowest ranking ground guy, but 
I could touch the, I could touch the lowest guy because he was standing right beside me. And uh, what we what we had was kind of a lack of a planning process simply because we had to be efficient to get out to hit the objective. So our team leaders and the PLs, and correct me if I'm wrong, Larry, when I say how this kind of worked on your side, but on our side it was our team leaders, and our team leaders are NCOs. So our team leaders go into the talk and they'd start to establish a plan and they might uh, draw something on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper or whatever. There's not a lot of overhead imagery. There's not a lot of that going on for, for the guys that are going on the ground. That particular day, our team leader, John Hale, super stellar dude goes in there. By the time he finally makes it to the helicopter, the helicopter is fired up. The co-pilot has started the bird. The crew chiefs have loaded the mini guns. We're ready to go. So there's no communication with the helicopter fired up right there. The only thing he said to me was he pulled out my, uh, I had the, the suction cup type earpiece on. He said, hey, there's gonna be a big gate when we get on the ground, you need to breach that gate. So all of us had charges, but I had more because I was a team breacher. So now think about that, you're going into this, into this fight and all you know is when you get on the ground, the, supposedly there's gonna be a big gate somewhere that you're gonna breach and then you're gonna go into the objective. You don't really know how that is laid out or any of that, 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 we, that just wasn't part of that process yeah, that, there. It goes back to what I was yeah. saying about it earlier, um, not knowing the floor plan or anything else. But to, to Kyle's point, what we did, two months of rehearsals for this, is because of the nature of the mission, you gotta go get someone, you gotta get them now when you have actual intelligence. You can't say, okay, he's there, let's wait until it's, it's night and, and they're asleep and we have darkness in our favor because he's gonna be gone by then. So you got to strike now. So what we did is develop a number of templates. Okay, if it's a building, we use this template. If it's a, if he's in a vehicle, we use that template. So that you you could go in and and the template was okay. These troops are on this helicopter, and and this team is on this helicopter, and this is the way we're going to do it. So everything was pre-planned and templated. Sure. So when you did get the actual intelligence, like Kyle says, team leader and above would get together in the Joint Operations Center, the Jock. And, and we basically, it was a two minute at longest process. Okay, here's what we got, here's the template, any questions? Mm -hmm. And then at that point in time, the, the smaller unit leaders could get together and say, well, instead of doing this, let's do that, okay, got it. So then you, you, know, you take that level where you got a two-star general overwatching this process, and you get down to team breacher level, okay, we're gonna land, you're gonna breach a big gate. But then because of the level of training, that's all you need to say because it's just going to be the flow and you go in, whoever's number one in that lineup, he, he goes and everyone follows mm -hmm. and then you got the next room to do and if you encounter another team, then you've trained at that what to do. So uh, people have asked me before, well, how do you not shoot the, the guys on your team if you're going simultaneous breaching points? Uh, how do, you know, how do you not shoot them? Well, you don't shoot them because they're your guys. Your your brain process. Lots of training, you know, tons of training where it's not just a breach and hold. You're hitting from every orifice of that building that you that you possibly can. On that particular day, though, when if if everything went perfectly, no problem. And and really, I would say up until the first bird got shot down, everything was no, going was well, perfectly. The only thing was is that there was some issue with the the last Ranger helicopter Super Six Seven, uh, with they couldn't get on because of the brownout. Landed mm -hmm. a, a roped out like a block earlier and had a Ranger Todd Blackburn fall about sixty feet and was near death because he, yeah. you know. Well, yeah, and part of that too was so that happened to them. 
we got put in at the wrong Spot. infills location, yeah. which you can say whatever you want, but we didn't have, you know, Google Maps hadn't sure. driven around Mogadishu to tell you where everything was at. Uh, GPSs just weren't what they are today. And they put us where they thought was the right spot. We fast rope in. There's a little gate. I didn't have to breach it. I shotgunned it and we went in. Well, that's not it. Mm -hmm. And then our team leader said, no, this is the building. So we go clear another building. That's still not it. And he goes, okay, I know where the target building is now. <laughs> and really, that's what we kind of expect. We're going to deal sure. with that on the ground. The Rangers got our back. They're covering from guys running out. They're covering from guys running in. So there wasn't really a lot of worry about that. We came out of the, I guess, we're, are we kind of at that phase of what's going on on the ground, you think? Or Yeah, yeah, so I think we should. Yeah. We, when, when we came out of our first building, at that point, everything was almost like it was training mm -hmm. because everything went exactly like we wanted. It was a dry hole. We could tell that there was nobody. It's like when you're in Iraq. You go into a house, and you know if you're in the bad guy's house or not. Mm -hmm. You just know. And we weren't. So we come out of that two-story building, and we strong pointed an intersection that was kind of behind it, these back alleys. And all of a sudden, there's a guy with an AK running across the street. And Steve Cashin and I, we couldn't believe how lucky we were. I mean, because you've been waiting <laughs> your whole, you know, you've been waiting your whole career for this moment. Like, I've, this is what I've trained for. And still, that wasn't really real because... You shoot this guy, he's down in the street, and now people. Now, what's the next thing? Well, they're trying to run up and grab his gun. They're trying to bring a, a donkey in with a guy hiding behind it. The donkey gets killed. I mean, there's a lot of that stuff. It probably started to get real about the time that we had a guy with a, trying to set up a machine gun in our position to shoot us. Earl Fillmore, one of our guys that was killed later in that fight, he popped around the corner and shot that guy with a 203. Boom, hits this guy, and then the team leader said, okay, we're heading across the street behind this house. We're gonna go over some walls, get to the actual target building. Mm -hmm. So something was different because we had more people reacting quicker than, than normal, but it still wasn't this, was, oh crap, because it was still kind of like training, like, oh, machine gun, oh, 203, boom, put it there, yep, good. All right, let's head out and, and go it, to the it next did, It didn't seem like anything extraordinary at that point. No, it, it was like a slow build, right? It was like a slow build as as we went, and you know, vehicles. You could see the vehicles. They arrived. Mm -hmm. You know, they arrived when when they were supposed mm -hmm. to. That we thought, you know, where they were supposed to. Now, but when you talk about, no, literally, I think I still have the the actual diagram. It was Xeroxed on like the world's worst Xerox paper of the, <laughs> and and we laid it down and and, and it's called. We actually, it was like drawing a football play in the sand, and it was like with a marker. Okay, here's chalk one. Here's chalk two. There's the assault force going in here. This is where you're going to be. This is where, I mean, that's got it. question. Was it Xerox or Mimeograph? It was Mimeograph. Yeah, yeah Mimeograph. so it's a Mimeograph. If you go back, what that is, that's not. That's just a different system to make a. You probably don't even know what that is. Yeah, I, I remember Mimeograph. <laughs> Barely. That was <laughs> it, little, it was just like really a little. Paper, it's just blotchy. And, yeah. and, 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 yeah, but that's, yeah. that's, that's, that was our plan. But, and that goes back to the need for absolute speed. You can't stop yep. and do deliberate planning under no. those circumstances. So as the assault force is going in, the, the Rangers are doing the isolation for sort of strong pointing. I mean, are, are you, you're seeing similar things, right? A, a general reaction You can You to, can hear things going behind you um, and pretty early on, but everything seems to be working. You know, and I could, I look back, I could see the assault force, you know, um, I could see the assault force, I'm back and I'm in radio communications, I know they're, just me where I was sitting I knew there was a problem with a guy falling off the you know uh, 
Blackburn fell on out of the helicopter, and uh, Sergeant Eversman is trying to um, report this, and his radio's breaking up, and I'm thinking he's screaming, and I'm trying to tell him that it's a funny story. I'm like, okay, now calm down. And he's like, who is this joker? You know, Sergeant Eversman, he's telling me to calm down. And I'm just saying, oh, I can't hear you. I'm just trying to understand what you're saying. Okay, I got it. I'll make sure I relay it to our company commander. Okay, fine. Come to find out the reason why he was breaking it out, there was a bullet hole <laughs> in his radio because oh, the wow. bullet had gone through it. Yeah. It was like, it, it didn't cut out his transmission, but it, it was a short in his, his antenna. So he wasn't, it wasn't, it was like intermittent, but we didn't know, but we, yeah. we laughed about it later. But so we knew there was a problem, but we thought, well, they're linked up with vehicles. They're fine. It's, it's stable. You know, there's a, there's a guy wounded because he fell, not because he shot, because he fell. But... Yeah, that was. When we finally got over all the walls to get to the target building, it was everything was done. So we had cleared a building. We had went over some walls, these back walls, and when we arrived there, everybody was kind of like, "Okay, we got these dudes. Let's get them ready to move." And at that point, when and I don't remember exactly how when Super Six One got shot, but it was all happening kind of at the same time. The convoy rolls up, and they told us, "Okay, C Team, you're going to go with the bad guys onto the truck." So Matt Ryerson took his guys to load them onto the vehicles, and I was on A-team. We were supposed to pull security while they did that. And I remember when we went out there, I looked down and I saw a burning vehicle. And I thought that was, I didn't, well, I didn't think about this till later, but I didn't realize that was one of our vehicles. Mm. So there's a burning, there's like at the end of that street, there's a burning five-ton truck or something down there. Yeah. And it never... It never again. registered. It's, it didn't. It didn't seem like that. Still wasn't an, an alarm thing because I didn't even think that was one of our vehicles, mm -hmm. and it was a ways down there. Um, so they pulled up. Was looking down to the left. You know, if you come out from the target building. Um, but about that time, I guess, is when Super Six One got hit. Well, right? just before that, when I start talking about the crescendo, and it started. Then we started seeing people trying to probe, sending kids up front towards our blocking position, starting to point and point them out. And uh, I mean, okay. I, and I was like, I remember uh, I, I was thinking our M60 gunner was gonna, I was like, well, why don't we just go ahead and shoot an M4, you know, and just shot nearby them and they scattered. But you could see women carrying uh, basically uh, RPG rounds down the alley. Yeah. And so we, we're starting to engage folks coming at it, but it was real sporadic, but I'm like you, I'm, we just got to hold off for another five minutes. You know, I got to call, hey, we're gonna exfil starting in five minutes. I mean, we even started grabbing our fast rope, grabbing the fast ropes and putting them in the bag so we could pull them out. We had them in the bag right when Super 6-1 got shot. Going, going back, you know, one of the things, we had car 15s and we had our optics mounted on the carrying handle. Mm -hmm. So we had an aim point with a really big dot. So it's essentially the same guns that we still carry today, mm -hmm. but we have better optics so we can, you know, be more accurate on the targets. and. I think that's you know that's something that we're trying to make shots. It's more difficult just because you have that huge dot. Um, it's mounted a little higher than you want it to be mounted, and you know some of the techniques are probably not what we would use today. But it's it was all it was just kind of normal up to that point till Super Six One got shot down, and that was that was it. And then everybody kind of knew the mission just immediately changed. We had a contingency plan when a bird crashed at Bragg broke the backs of the pilots and started on fire. The Rangers and the unit guys put the fire out and got the guys out and mm -hmm. took them to the hospital. We knew at that point when we did our hot wash that night was the fact that 
if if that happened in Mogadishu, everybody knew what was going to what was going to take place. We're going to move on foot to the crash site and secure it, and then try to treat wounded or whatever. Well, why is that? Well, you move on foot because you probably don't have vehicles. If you do have vehicles, they may not fit down the alleyways that you're dealing with. Some of these narrow alleyways, but there was no, there didn't have to be a lot of communication because the Rangers knew exactly what was going on, mm -hmm. and we were right there with them. And we were, you know, I don't want to say we were dictating the mission, but the, the mission plan was kind of led by the unit dudes and all the yeah. Ranger PLs and platoon sergeants. They were, everybody knew the plan. Mm -hmm. So when that bird went down, there was no, oh, what are we going to do? It was, okay, let's get everybody together. Rangers are going to lead out, and we're going to go to that crash site, secure the crash site, get these guys out of there, and then do Plus whatever. we had the SAR bird. We had a search and rescue helicopter on every mission with 15 people in the back of it. Mm -hmm just for that type of contingency. We had to, we had contingency plans for our contingency plans. So like Kyle says, when something goes off from the main plan, you don't stop then and say, okay, what do we do? You just say, okay, now we do this, we've planned for this, we've rehearsed for this. As a matter of fact, kind of eerily, if you remember, what, a week or two, we did a rehearsal south of the city of Super 6-1. And the yeah. same Super 6-1 yeah. that got shot down, that was the one they landed and we actually moved to it mm -hmm. and secured it. We rehearsed what we almost, what we had to do later. I was a casualty during that training. And I really? come back all sugar biscuit because they took my gear off and then the bird ticks off and I'm You look like a Christmas cookie. Yeah, I look like a Christmas cookie. Christmas cookie. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there was no, I think, and I think that's what really helped us to be efficient there was there's no, there didn't have to be a lot of commo. Just let's go. Hey, you guys lead out. We got your. We got the back. And then when, at that point, uh, you guys were in front of us. Yes. Your 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 guys were. Um, well, if remember Tom DiDomaso, it was almost a straight shot. Yeah. And him and his guys, you know, one one guy uh, Nelson was the one who saw it go down, and he just with his team just took off. And Tom goes well. I'm taking off too because I can't just split my force. Mm -hmm. And so they ran to it and they were like one of the first ones to get to the helicopter while the remainder of the the assault force and the remainder of the folks, you know, really my platoon yeah. raced. One of the things too to add to that point, when part of the contingency is everybody should know that plan and I feel like that there were there were some things that had happened earlier that day. Um, Larry Moore's, I think was his name, he got left behind because he was getting water on the other side. Yeah, he was on a yeah. water resupply. He was on run. a water resupply, so somebody else jumped in to take his spot, higher ranking dude. I don't think he understood quite what the contingency plan was, and I don't think, I, I pretty much know he didn't know what it was because he saw uh, the <laughs> other half of Dito's platoon moving there, and he stopped and told him to get on his vehicles. Mm -hmm. And they were like, negative, sir, we got to, because they know the plan, Eversman knew the plan. Matt Eversman's super soldier dude, he uh, he knew exactly the plan, contingency plan. But when Lieutenant Colonel tells you, get your ass on the vehicle, what do you do? So they got on the vehicle, they got exfilled from the battlefield, never to come back again. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but they, they when, when he went out, I don't think Matt ever got to come back. And I guess the point is, when you show up, when you're on the battlefield, to all of a sudden lose half of your combat power, just think about that. It can happen in Iraq or Afghanistan with an IED and you lose half your people. That can happen in one explosion. But this happened because of one one person probably not understanding that contingency well and then, then the other guys falling through on orders and doing what they're told. So now you got a platoon leader out there that doesn't have all his people. I, I, at least that's well, how I've... I, I, I'm, I'm not really sure if that's 
exactly how it well bottom line is we never linked up at some yeah. point because we're running on foot you know and there's tom moving here and we're all moving parallel yeah. towards the towards the crash site in a parallel street like yep. two blocks up you know one block over and we just started running here and the vehicles just because they're wider couldn't they just yeah. lost us, and they couldn't get, you know. And they, it's, they never did make it to the crash site. Never did. Vehicles. Never did. And they so, finally got shot up to the point where they returned to the base. Yeah, so they weren't coming to the base. They were trying to link up with us, but they got so turned around and shot up. Yeah, and I think it goes back to, though, the plan. We had a plan, and we the reason we had that plan was so that, because we knew the vehicles couldn't do that. So we had a good contingency plan, and I guess... If your plan's not working, then change your plan. But we, if we, if the plan would have remained the same, I, I feel like having those guys on the ground, being rangers, because mm -hmm. rangers are devastating on the ground when they're shoved in the back of a truck, then they're just a passenger, you know. So when we started moving up to the crash site, we're behind uh, um, Larry and his guys. So he's the the LT up there. There's. Um, I don't know how many guys you had up there with you, but uh, I had like 11 at that time. Yeah, when I started with 11. So as we moved up that street, it, when we turned up that street, that's when things got... Hit. I remember it, we turned left yep. to yep. head, and it started sloping downhill towards the crash site. Remember, we went to the top, yep. and it was like you ran into a wall of, of gunfire. Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. Remember to check back in two weeks so you can hear our guests talk through the rest of the Battle of Mogadishu. To make sure you don't miss it, you can also subscribe to The Spear wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take just a second to give us a rating or leave a review. Thanks again for listening.